Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kayla Erfmeyer, a junior from Grand Rapids, Michigan, studying business and psychology here at Kelvin. I would like to welcome you to the January series of 2018. I would like to offer a special welcome today to the guests at four of our 52 remote webcast sites, Pella, Iowa, Wyckoff, New Jersey, Cary, North Carolina, and Portland, Michigan. And now, if you would please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We are so grateful for the opportunity we have to listen and learn here at Kelvin College. I ask for your blessing on Kevin today as he speaks to us. God, use his words, wisdom, and experiences to inspire us, to inspire the way we live and how we demonstrate our faith to others. We are reminded of your goodness each and every day, God, and we thank you for your continued blessings as we live out your will. In your precious name we pray, amen. And now, Julie Haga, Director of Conferences and Campus Events, will be introducing our guest. Hello. Today we welcome Kevin Palau, son of international evangelist Luis Palau and the president of the Luis Palau Association. The association has produced some of the largest Christian events ever staged close to one million people in attendance. As an event professional, that's a good party. The festival model for mass evangelism is based on free, family-friendly celebrations with music, sport exhibitions, interactive children areas, and fun while all sharing the gospel and the good news of Jesus. In 2008, Kevin and the Palau Association connected with the local officials in Portland, Oregon before the city's festival and asked a simple yet profound question. How can we help? What can we do to serve? Out of the partnership between city and church, CityServe was born. These are service projects, needs defined by the city and carried out by local churches. With CityFest as the catalyst and CityServe as the long-standing effect, they showed successful integration of city and church working together to meet the most critical needs of the community. This collaboration and partnership, as unlikely as they come, is still thriving today. And now allow me the opportunity to inform you that we in West Michigan will get to experience our own City Fest this September. The preparation and prayers that go into pulling off this type of event is un unmatched. On March 1, the campaign officially launches with Renew, featuring Kevin's brother Andrew Palau and Christian music artist Phil Wickham. Experience the movement together. Connect on Facebook and at CityFestWestMichigan.org. Our ushers will be handing out a flyer with more details on Renew and City Fest as you exit the auditorium. Following today's presentation, Kevin will be available in the West Lobby to greet you. His book, Unlikely, is also for sale. Calvin College is grateful to Holland Litho Printing Services for underwriting today's presentation. Now please join me in welcoming Kevin Plow. Thank you so much. It's a blessing to be here and uh, to talk apparently about Portland, Michigan. Apparently there is a Portland, Michigan. I was not aware of that. And uh, greetings to all of our, my fellow Portlanders uh, in this great state of Michigan. I was not aware. I knew about Portland, Maine and of course our home city of Portland, Oregon. But that was a new one to me. Um, those of you that uh, know anything about uh, my dad or our organization, growing up as a kid, uh, my dad was the Billy Graham of Latin America. 
And that was kind of the easy, quick way for people to get a handle on, uh, and some of you college students are like, Billy Graham, I have no idea who that is. Ask uh, your parents or grandparents. But uh, Billy Graham is this incredible, winsome person who was able to get the churches of all denominations working together at the city level. Dad was the first Latin American to say, why aren't we doing that in our context in Latin America? And so for 60 years now, Dad has been doing that. But I'm not here to talk primarily about that, but more about what is it like to live as gospel people in a season of exile that, that if you live in a place like Portland, Oregon, as Christ followers, you can definitely feel that we're in this season of being exiles in our own country. Portland, Oregon, if you know anything about it, there's a, this is the last season of a, of a hit show on IFC called Portlandia that pokes fun at how incredibly quirky and uh, proudly progressive Portland, Oregon is. Uh, we have, for example, uh, the largest naked bike ride in the world. Did you realize that? 15,000 people ride their bikes naked through the streets of Portland every year. Don't think about it too much. I apologize if I just put an image in your mind that you'd like to get out. Uh, but that's, that's, a, that's a Portlandia-like thing to do. It's a place where people from all, all parts of the country have come to escape what they might feel are the burdens of uh, an oppressive, you know, more conservative kind of a culture. It's a place that actually does uh, view itself as a bastion of, of freedom, and in some ways it is. Um, but it's also been a place where for those that are, that are attempting imperfectly as we might to be followers of Jesus, it, it has not always been the most welcoming place. It's not a place where people resonate with going to church or talking about biblical things. Um, it would be kind of an anti-Bible Belt place. And so uh, we found ourselves here. The reason that, we're, that the, the Plow Organization has been based in Portland all these years when my dad's from Argentina is that about 56 years ago, my mom and dad met at a uh, Bible school, Multnomah School of the Bible. It was called back then, Multnomah University now, and fell in love. And after eight years of living in Latin America, uh, my three brothers and I as kids, as the ministry got larger, Portland just made sense uh, as a place to live because it was mom's home. Uh, but we didn't really do much uh, ministry there in Portland, and part of the, partly, you know, it was a challenging place. It wasn't a place where the churches were working together, and it was a place where we realized uh, about 10 years ago, we began having conversations as a group of pastors and leaders in Portland to say, what would it look like uh, for the Christian community in a place like Portland uh, to be able to reflect the love of Jesus in a way that would be heard by these uh, wonderful citizens of Portlandia uh, that absolutely view us in ways that aren't the most flattering. What we recognize is that as people that are trying to follow Jesus, the perception of the community at large is that we were known basically entirely for things that we were against and not in any way for being for the city. We realized in our efforts to try to communicate the good news of Jesus, to live it out, uh, we weren't starting in, in common ground. We were starting with this 10-foot hole of misunderstanding that's been dug over the decades um, as, as Christ followers have at times not portrayed ourselves super well. Um, and so in this, in this context in Portland, we began this journey of saying, what does it look like to live as Jesus followers, united uh, as a body of Christ and serving the community? Uh, one of the first things we did, one of the, one of the passages that's been most, uh, let's see if I'm turn this the right way, there we go, uh, kind of a theme verse for the churches in Portland became this, this key passage in uh, the book of Jeremiah, the letter that Jeremiah, uh, the word of Jeremiah, the, uh, the prophet, 
through God's uh, spirit to the uh, people of Israel in exile, you can see this simple thought. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too shall prosper. He began this conversation with churches in Portland to say, we know that we're known, unfortunately, for being against the city. We didn't sit and vote that that be the case. But the way the media tends to portray the Christian community, it at times seems like we're only about standing against this or standing against that. And so this verse became a theme as we, as we began to think, what would it look like for the church of Jesus Christ in Portland to begin to build relationships of trust with people that were on the other end of many different spectrums than us, that, that viewed us as the enemy, uh, to put it in an extreme way. And so it began with a conversation with some pastors praying about this verse. What would it look like for us to seek the shalom of this city where some would feel that we're almost in exile, where there's such a cultural gap between the world of a scriptural uh, a view of life and the, and the landscape in Portland that, uh, that we would need to be uh, actively seeking this shalom. So it began with, with uh, these pastors deputizing my dad and I to say, go talk to the mayor. And at the time, the mayor-elect, a guy named Sam Adams, who wrote the foreword to this book that was mentioned unlikely, has become a very, very good friend. At the time, Sam, who was a city commissioner, uh, was the first openly gay mayor, uh, or at this point, mayor-elect, soon to be mayor, of a top 25 city in the country. And I mentioned that just so there would be a sense of he was beginning with an understandable skepticism based on his past experiences with the Christian community. But to his credit, he was willing to meet with this evangelist and his son uh, on behalf of a group of churches and to begin a conversation. So we basically sat down with Sam and said, Sam, uh, we love you. We appreciate the role you serve as mayor of Portland. You're doing a great job as city commissioner, and, and, and we're glad you're now mayor-elect. Uh, we're coming as a group of churches, and we're frankly embarrassed that we've not had this conversation before, and that as a community, we're sadly known mostly for being against things and not for the city. And, and Scripture commands us to be actively involved in seeking the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city. If we can mobilize 15,000 Jesus followers from within our community to help make a difference, what kinds of things could we do? And that began a, a, an amazing conversation as he began to think and reflect on what are the needs in Portland. He had very little expectation of the church's ability to actually get something done, but he said later as we became friends that because we weren't asking for money, he figured what, what's the harm? They can't do too much damage, presumably, uh, if, we, if we give them some service projects. So that began about a six-month effort uh, building up to what we'd been doing for years, which is gathering tens of thousands of people in, in outdoor settings and uh, with music and fun activities and presenting the good news. This time the idea, though, uh, was a little different. What if we could mobilize the Christian community in a place like Portland to love and serve the community with no strings attached, absolutely no agenda, and then the festival would take on this, this role of being a celebration of unity within the body of Christ across the diversity within the community, a place of celebrating the good that can be done as Jesus followers get out of the pews and activate into the community, and then certainly a place for the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. So, so what sorts of, of ways did the church begin to serve? Um, the first thing that Sam mentioned as, uh, as mayor that, that, that was on his heart uh, was education. He came in as an education mayor because at the time, 
though Portland is this uh, very proudly progressive place, a beautiful place in so many ways, Portland public schools were only graduating 53% of the students on time, which is a pretty shocking thing. And Sam coming in, you know, quickly said, you know, I'm going to be an education mayor, and one of our main goals is going to be to increase the on-time graduation rate. What sorts of things can we do? So that was on his mind, and so when we came saying, hey, with an open hand and with no strings attached, we think we could mobilize thousands of Jesus followers to love and serve. We're not the experts in any of these areas, but if you give us some tasks to do, we will give it a try. So first that came to his mind, and this also we were joined in the conversation the next meeting by Carol Smith, Portland Public School Superintendent, who also happens to be a member of Portland's LGBTQ community. So she also was coming in with a certain skepticism, one, because public school superintendent, the idea of unleashing a horde of fundamentalist Christians in her mind, this is what's rolling through her mind, on the schools of Portland did not seem like a great idea at the time. Um, but, but she, again, like Sam, she was willing to say, let's, let's just start, take some baby steps, see what might happen. And they both, and they picked Roosevelt High School uh, for some reasons that I wasn't totally aware of at the time. One was because it was secretly on a short list of schools to be shuttered uh, because they were, it was built in the 1920s for 2,200 students. By the time this conversation was taking place, there were 450 students left at Roosevelt High School. As the St. John's neighborhood had changed over the years, um, as it had become a place of gang violence, at least by Portland, Oregon standards, anyone that, that could get their child out of Roosevelt had done it. And so the few students that were left, the, the administration, the faculty, were very discouraged. Uh, there was no football team, for example, because they'd condemned the grandstands and there was no community will to do anything about it because I think the feeling was this school may be closed anyway. So again, looking back now, they told us later on, the feeling was the school might be closed anyway, so how much damage could these Christians do at Roosevelt High School? That would be a safe place to let them try something. And so, you know, it began this conversation, so many unintended outcomes, uh, not only for the school and for, the, for uh, the community at large, but for the Christian community. So into this setting, we had, a, we had a gathering of about 500 pastors and leaders. We had Sam come as mayor-elect. He told me again afterwards as we, as we became friends and trust was built, he told me afterwards that he fully expected half the audience or more to kind of stand up and walk out in protest uh, to just kind of show their displeasure at him and the city's policies and, and just who he is, and instead he got a standing ovation. Not because the churches were saying, we agree unilaterally with everything you, are, everything you stand for in the city of Portland's policies, but because there was such a pent-up uh, interest in the, in the part of believers in Portland to say, somebody at the city level knows that even in unchurched Portland, there, are, there is such a thing as Jesus followers, and we love the city, so that, that desire to build community was outstanding. And Sam put forward Roosevelt High School. So one of the people in the audience was a guy named Kip Jacobs, who pastors a, a mega church by Portland standards. If you have 1,500 people uh, in Portland, that's, that's a big, big church. And they're a church in West Lynn, Oregon. It's about um, 20 miles away from the St. John's neighborhood. And I would say it's even a bigger cultural gap it's a pretty affluent uh, suburban neighborhood. And they came into the situation, and, and this is how Kip would describe himself, so I'm not kind of you know, throwing darts at him. He would say they came in with that kind of suburban swagger of just watch what we can do. We have a lot of executives at our church. We've got executives from Nike. You know, we have a lot of capacity. Give us a big project. So what began with them saying, uh, you know, give us something to do, they had the vision of saying, what if we mobilize 1,000 folks from South Lake 
uh, to come and plan with, with a lot of preparation, which they did, uh, a, a major makeover of the school. And so in June, on a Saturday in June of, two, of uh, 2008, um, a thousand people joined by a couple hundred community folks and all the city commissioners and Mayor Adams were there, uh, came and did an incredible job, well-planned. They, they made an incredible impact in making over the school on that particular day. Uh, but if that was the end of the story, that would be a kind of a, a bit of a hollow sort of an example. What began to happen as the Spirit of God just began to knit the hearts, despite this big cultural gap between uh, folks at South Lake and the students and families at Roosevelt High School, folks from South Lake just began showing up week after week after week. This wasn't part of the plan. But with Christine Summers, who was the outreach pastor of the church, people just kept saying, how can we serve? How can we serve? How can we serve? Over a period of time, they, they, they started a new clothing closet, a food pantry. They began running the uh, Head Start program. Uh, they put together a, a nursery for the students who have kids. Uh, Neil Lomax, a former NFL quarterback, uh, had the vision along with the head of the NFL for Nike, who happened to be a member at South Lake, to say, what if we could uh, uh, build up the community will to rebuild the football field and the track and the grandstands. And sure enough, about a year later, uh, they did an incredible job. They began mentoring every kid in the freshman class. The on-time graduation rate at Roosevelt climbed 20 percentage points in three years, from 36% to more than 55%, which still has a long way to go. But, but uh, all of these things happened. I'm sharing it quickly. Obviously, this is a work of, of methodical work of the Spirit speaking to individual Jesus followers, many of whom I'm sure were thinking, I'm just one person, I'm a housewife, I'm a busy business exec, what can I actually do? They began to just engage in all of these ways, and the transformation at Roosevelt High School has been profound over these years, uh, to the point where Carol Smith uh, that I mentioned, the school superintendent who began with such nervousness and fear about unleashing a horde of Christians onto the wonderful environment in Portland Public Schools, came to us with a couple school board members, a couple years of observing the transformation at Roosevelt High School and said, please can we work together and find a church partner for every school in Portland Public Schools. And we now have done that in 16 different school districts, 318 public schools in the Portland metro area, about 70% of the public schools now have a formal church partner at the request of our school superintendents. We'll have gatherings now where the superintendent will bring, uh, have a mandatory meeting, every principal must come. We'll bring the pastors in that geographic area and just have a conversation around what would it look like to build robust community partnerships between the faith community, in this case the churches, and the schools. And, and uh, Carol and I will stand up there and, and, and we'll say, we understand that there's a line of separation there between church and state. We understand that, that, the, that in these times of serving, that's not a time when the churches are going to be sharing their faith, proselytizing. This is simply a time of volunteering and uh, showing uh, love for the community. The first time that Carol and I had that conversation and she was expressing the concern about proselytizing, as she called it, I remember kind of chuckling and saying, if that's your concern, you don't know our people very well at all. Most of them, you couldn't pay them to ever open their mouth and say a word, so you have nothing to worry about, I assure you. But here's my card, here's my cell phone. If you ever have an issue, and I've done this with 16 different school uh, superintendents in the last 10 years, and I would say, with a tiny, tiny touch of sadness, you know, not surprising, I've never gotten a call. Obviously, I didn't want to call from some problem, but again, what it shows in a place like Portland, and I would dare say 
here in uh, southwest Michigan or anywhere in the country that the, the challenge for believers in Portland isn't controlling rabidly evangelistic believers. It's giving the average Jesus follower just a modicum of confidence in their faith and a recognition that indwelt by the very spirit of Jesus Christ, we have an incredible role that we can play in the city that can even be recognized even in a place like Portland, Oregon, where folks that would be very much not committed followers of Jesus would not be wanted to be called that way that at all, but can recognize that we can find common ground despite massive disagreements politically, socially, uh, we can find incredible common ground around meeting needs in the community, around seeking the peace and prosperity of the city. Uh, another great example, is, and then this school partnership network is what I mentioned where now in 16 different school districts, there's a formal request, let's please partner together on an ongoing basis. Obviously, very few of the partnerships are at the level of a Roosevelt High School. Few churches in Portland have a full-time outreach pastor. Few of them have uh, former NFL quarterbacks and key executives at Nike as members. But the, whether it's the smallest church plant, a struggling, dying congregation, mostly with senior citizens, there's absolutely ways that every congregation can build a relationship of trust with the neighborhood school and simply ask, how can we serve? Which is a very Christ-like question not assuming that we have the answers. Another example of the radical ways that the church has been able to engage in a place like Portland, Oregon, crazy and quirky as it is, has been in the foster care system. Uh, the same simple process that we used of building a relationship of trust, not assuming that we have the answers, not assuming that we have a solution for the issues, but simply going as followers of Jesus and sitting down and, and having a conversation. Um, this began, uh, the foster care initiative began with one couple at a church called Imago Dei Community, uh, kind of a hipster church right in the heart of Portland, mostly filled with 20-somethings. And one couple at the church uh, were foster parents and had begun just on their own to go out to East Multnomah County, which is a place as, as Portland has been gentrified. Uh, there's positives to that. There are definitely negatives, and poverty's migrated out to East Multnomah County where the services aren't as prevalent. And so she, so she saw the, the, the pressure on the caseworkers uh, there at the DHS is what we call it in, in Oregon. Department of Human Services is what manages the foster care system in Oregon. And so, so they would go out as a couple and just take cookies and just try to show some love and support from people that they just observed as they spent time there that were very discouraged. And so uh, they went to the leaders of their church, and it very quickly became a conversation at the city level, like the schools did, where we said, this shouldn't be something for one church. This should be something for where the entire body of Christ collectively works to meet needs in the foster care system. So we began very simply. We learned to do this with Mayor Adams, with Superintendent Smith. We said there are nine different Department of Human Services offices in the Portland metro area. Let's get a cluster of churches that are geographically near each of those DHS offices and go in there and just, same thing, humbly say thank you. And is there any way we can help? So I'll never forget the first one of those that I went into uh, with, a, with a cluster of pastors out in East Multnomah County, we sat down, uh, we began simply saying, we love you, thank you for serving our most vulnerable kids. Is there anything we can do to make your life easier? Uh, the woman who happened to be a woman that headed up that office burst into tears and said, nobody has ever come in here looking for how they can help. Nobody comes into these offices that's not in crisis themselves. Uh, if the media come in here, it's not to say good job, it's basically to say, you guys are the enemy, uh, and, and despite all of our best efforts, uh, things have gone wrong. 
And so the, the DHS offices uh, in, in the Portland area are very beleaguered, feeling under attack. To have a group of Jesus followers coming in to say, we love you, thank you for serving, what can we do to make your life easier? And so again, it began in these simple ways like, like with the schools. It began with simple makeovers of these uh, DHS offices. Um, simple, simple things to take what was kind of a bureaucratic, grungy uh, kinds of offices and making them over. Uh, one example, the Portland Timbers, Major League Soccer is probably not a very big deal uh, here in uh, Michigan when you've got your uh, NFL and Major League Baseball, etc. In Portland, another quirky thing is that Major League Soccer is huge. There's 10,000 people on the waiting list in the 25,000 seat stadium to watch the Portland Timbers. Uh, Portland prides itself on being different in that way as well. And so we began uh, working with the Portland Timbers along with all the churches. We did some wonderful makeovers of all the DHS offices. We created a place for the kids to play. We have on call now kind of grandparents uh, from the churches that will come in when in the middle of the night. Often the, the way things work is that the police will come in with a child uh, that's been had to pull out of a, a crisis situation with their belongings in a garbage bag. And before this whole effort, they would sit on a folding metal chair waiting to find out where they're going to go. Imagine. Uh, and so now they come into a place that's been designed for them with, with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that are, that are prayed up and ready to just simply love and serve and pray with those kids. The church has put together 5,000 welcome kits every year so that every child that comes into this environment gets something that's, that's just for them with a handwritten note. Uh, we were given the challenge of raising up 700 more foster families from within the Christian community, which would, which would be a huge, huge chore. We're about a third of the way there toward that in these first couple of years of this effort. Uh, we do foster parents' nights out every month. Foster parents, I didn't realize, that I'm learning a lot about the foster care system. I didn't realize you, could, you couldn't just go get a babysitter randomly uh, if you're a foster parent. You have to leave people with someone who's been background checked, etc. That puts foster parents in a challenging situation at times. And so the church has now put on monthly foster parents' nights out across the metro area collectively so that uh, those that are already in the system don't burn out and stick with it. So all these things, again, I'm sharing it quickly, but all these things took place over a period of a couple years, observed by a Department of Human Services that, again, like the school district, was concerned, will this work? The transformation was so robust in the Portland area that um, at the state level, uh, they came to us, uh, state capital in Salem, and said, with not a penny of government funding, the churches have done more to impact the foster care system and raise up foster parents than the millions of dollars we spend every year trying to get people interested in this system. Please, will you take what we call Embrace Oregon now to all 36 counties in the state of Oregon? And so the, the, the transformation has been uh, phenomenal. One little example, that's not me with glasses, that's my identical twin brother, uh, Keith. And there he is at Soldier Field uh, in Chicago. I mentioned the Portland Timbers being a big deal, this Major League Soccer team. Keith, as just one individual follower of Jesus, trying to find a way to serve, has become a big deal in the, in the Timbers Army supporters group called the, the Timbers uh, Army. Um, they, they have thousands of people that stand in the whole match and they sing songs, et cetera. And they're, they're almost like a church. They, they represent a community. And Keith has become a leader in that group of mostly very proudly pagan uh, uh, wonderful Portlandia folks. Uh, and Keith has become the kind of the community service liaison for the west side of Portland. And so he got the Timbers players involved and many, many hundreds of Timbers Army folks into Embrace Oregon. 
And so then, kind of unbeknownst to him, the Timbers Army uh, folks voted him as the Community Service Volunteer of the Year. All the 22 Major League Soccer teams had someone go forward, and then it was a social media voting strategy, and there's Keith at halftime at Soldier Field winning $25,000 for Embrace Oregon. That's just my proud, the proud brother had to throw that in there uh, for the sake of my awesome twin. Um, so it's been amazing to see the foster care system. Uh, on the refugee care side as well, at a time when, when uh, the care for refugees has become a hot button politically, uh, thankfully Oregon's one of those places that has said, we welcome refugees. Portland, the city of Portland, the state of Oregon were among the first in light of all the, the, the political tensions of our day uh, to say, we stand with refugees. And, and so again, the church had an opportunity to say, how do we figure out the right way to humbly come alongside Lutheran Community Services, Catholic Charities, Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, those that have the contracts to bring in about 1,500 refugees a year. What simple, practical things can we do to come alongside refugees and welcome them into our community as full members and, and walk with them on the journey? So it's been another tremendous example uh, to see uh, hundreds of churches in the Portland area being those that are at the airport welcoming them, outfitting the uh, apartments, finding uh, brothers and sisters that are of the same cultural group, speak the same language, to walk alongside them as they uh, go into the process of finding work and, and just becoming uh, acclimatized to life in these United States. Uh, so it's been a blessing to see all the different ways that, that, that the community of Christ followers in Portland have gone from being an unknown entity or perhaps even, again, viewed as as a problem, something to be avoided, to becoming a, 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 a radically impactful part of the Christian community. Oops. So I'm just going to show a little video that shows some of the sights and sounds of this, and you can hear from uh, Mayor Adams and some of our pastors. Portland, Oregon is among the least churched parts of the country. It's a very politically progressive place, as our city leaders say. So what does it look like to proclaim the good news, to live out the good news in a holistic way in a place like that? I've really come to appreciate the sincerity and the interest in just being partners on improving people's lives and improving the community on which the churches exist. It's really allowing the church to be the church. Um, and we're actually being viewed as a resource, which we know we are and we ought to be. People are receiving love and receiving Jesus. And it was all because we just really wanted to serve. How in the world can we connect all 471 schools in this greater Portland area with at least one church partner that says, that's my school. One of the first things I was told about Oregon was it was one of the most unchurched states in the nation. And so to my surprise to come and see a church working on a school campus in this community was a bit of a shocker. In these two years, uh, we've been able to identify about 250 of those schools that have a church that's you know, raised their hand and said, that one's mine. It's evolved into years later from an act of service to an ongoing relationship. It's provided stability in, in a community that typically you know, experiences turnover, but to see that this has remained steady is, is a gift and a blessing. We want every school to know, hey, I've got th this 
one, two, three, four church partners that I know I can count on. They're, they're part of what we're doing here. They're part of this school community. Embrace Oregon is an idea, it's a movement, and it really started with the idea that the community could come alongside with something tangible for children in this most vulnerable time of waiting. And the response that we got through this Welcome Box initiative was just so completely overwhelming. To see how God has used not only fostering those children and learning just how to love them and, and how special they are, but also doing renovations and remodels and foster parent nights out and all that stuff. And God kind of blew it up into this, this huge thing. It's been incredible that less than a year later, there are 72 churches in the Portland metro area that are saying, we at some capacity are committed to shining a spotlight on the needs of child welfare. Churches are together saying, what does Portland look like in 20 years if we are together for the gospel. It has definitely improved people's lives and it has definitely improved the city of Portland because of those efforts. The greatest way to soften hearts for the gospel is to be in relationship with people. We have to genuinely know them. They need to know us. It takes time, it takes energy. Jesus modeled that for us. All together we are the body, not just my individual local church, but all of us together. We're the body of Jesus in this city. And I think we're just scratching the, the surface as far as what we can do in collaboration. The years that it took to, to organize the public school kind of ministries where churches working with, took several years to really get that running. Where foster care was 18 months from three couples, 72 churches, you know, 18 months. So that's powerful. You realize when the church is mobilized, it really is an unstoppable force. I love that comment of Rick, and Rick is a, Rick is a good friend, and uh, it's so true. When the Church of Jesus Christ is properly mobilized in love, in unity, it's an unstoppable force, even in a place like Portland, Oregon, uh, where we are a distinct minority. We have no aspirations of political power. We know we can't vote our way uh, into anything. It's simply the humble way of Jesus Christ that has opened up so many doors. And the relationships have just gotten sweeter and sweeter among pastors over the years. I put this photo up just from this past week. Um, some of you, there you see Rick and some of the other pastors and John Mark, a couple of pastors from the video. These are the pastors of the largest churches in Portland, all different denominations. And the reason that they are there, that's my parents, my mom and dad. Some of you may know this already and some of you might not, but uh, my 83-year-old dad who has been in the great health his entire life just last week was diagnosed as, as someone who's never smoked a cigarette in his life with stage four lung cancer. So you can imagine for our family, for the community there, it's one of these times where it just kind of jolts you a little bit into the realities of eternity. And, uh, but I put that up there because it's so touching to see the, the, the spiritual leaders of Portland immediately coming together. And they would have done this for any one of themselves either. There's a sweet fellowship and an ongoing relationship around that question of what does Portland look like 20 years from now if we can maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace, as Paul talks about, if we can actually work as one for the sake of the city with no strings attached, but within, without in any way being ashamed of the good news of Jesus, 
uh, because I think you'll see we're walking that tightrope constantly in Portland of we are who we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We're not embarrassed to be called that. We're not embarrassed to have a message, a life-changing message of Jesus Christ. At times that leads us into places with, in partnership with people that would disagree with, with us on all kinds of issues, but they would see the love of Jesus. So um, if you think of it, if the Lord brings to mind, do pray for dad. He's very much at peace. If you had a chance to see him, he's a very spry and energetic and lively 83-year-old uh, that's trusting the Lord like, like all of us in the family are, uh, that God is going to give him uh, the opportunity we hope for many months or even a few years to come. And uh, it's been such a blessing to work with him for me 33 years now since Wheaton College class of 85. Uh, my twin brother and I have had a chance to work with dad. So if you think of it, pray for Luis Palau. If that's a new name to you, uh, this festival that's coming up. I'm just going to talk about, just as we wrap up, just with a few more minutes and then some Q&A, um, you know, just some reflections. Uh, what are five simple things that, that, that I've learned in this process of the last 10 years? Because we're 10 years into a unified movement in Portland. Um, and, and, and by the way, we're still saying, what does Portland look like in 20 years? There's no end point. We're not going to, when we hit a 20-year point, say we're done cooperating together as churches, obviously. The point of that is simply, we have a long-term vision. We care about the city for the long term. So five things that I've learned. These are very, very simple and obvious things, but I think would apply in any setting. One is that the good news is still good news. Even in Portlandia, there is a heart desire on the part of people to understand what the message of good news is about. I can't tell you how many gospel conversations I've had with people that thought that we were the enemy but as they experienced the love of Jesus Christ, I wish I had time to tell you about Sam Adams personally. At a time of crisis, um, just as he was actually, after he was sworn in as mayor, and there was a major scandal that erupted. You can Google it if you want the information. But a major personal scandal that erupted. And because of the love that was shown, the ability of the church to come around him when other parts of the community were absolutely attacking him, for good reason, I would say, he did something very wrong. Uh, but the church were the ones actually in a, in a weird twist of gospel fate, I guess you could say, were the ones coming alongside, praying with him. My dad spent two hours with him one-on-one, -on -one, just praying and answering his question, Luis, I don't get it. I'm a smart guy. How could I have done that? I knew it was wrong. And dad just spent, like any good evangelist or probably any of us hopefully would, just biblically answering the question of the condition of the human heart and the fact that all of us are the same. You happen to get found out for something you'd been trying to hide, but every one of us are in need of, of this good news of Jesus Christ. So even in Portland and wherever you're, you are here or watching, the good news is still good news. And we need as, as Western Christians, this is not quite the same in the, in the global south. In my experiences in Africa, Latin America, you do not need to work real hard to enthuse followers of Jesus in mainland China, in Latin America and Africa to be joyful in sharing their faith. Here in the U.S., it's, it's the work of a lifetime to kind of inculcate that confidence, not an arrogance, uh, not, a, not a pointing the finger, but a humble confidence in saying, even if the culture uh, is opposed to some of the things that, that, uh, that I stand for and my declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ by the way I live and by my verbalizing it, the good news is still good news for everybody, uh, whatever the political persuasion, whatever their sexuality, the good news is good news. Um, secondly, word and deed are a powerful combination. Um, that's very obvious. It's very biblical. But, you know, for my dad, as an evangelist, growing up in an older era, there, there, was, there had generally been a feeling of, you know, the liberal progressive 
Christians that have kind of abandoned the gospel, they get out there and do social justice work. But those of us that truly stand for the Bible and have a view of the authority of Scripture, we proclaim the good news. And sadly, for, for multiple generations in the church in the U.S., there was this bifurcation and this uh, uh, unbiblical chasm between word and deed. And, and this is thankfully uh, very much less and less of an issue. But some of you may go to churches that would struggle somewhat with the proclamation side. You may go to a, a more progressive kind of church. You may go to a more conservative church that struggles with engaging in things that don't directly lead to sharing Jesus. And uh, we would say, of course, that both are absolutely biblical. They're justified in every way. And, 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 in, and in fact, when it comes to bearing witness for Jesus, the combination of the two is absolutely the right way to go. Um, and thirdly, that boldness and joy count for even more than strategy. It's not that strategy isn't important. We sat and, and prayed as leaders. We came up with concepts. We went to see the right city leaders. Uh, we, we built relationships of trust. But what I found is that uh, more impactful is the joy and the boldness that people see when the Holy Spirit is activated in the life of an individual believer. Um, there are lots of people in Portland that serve in lots of ways. The church is not going to outserve Portlanders. We're not doing this because we're trying to prove that we're better than the ath some atheist group that might be serving as well. We would say, though, that a unique uh, part of any follower of Jesus Christ is that we are indwelt, I hope you can say amen to this, by the very Spirit of Jesus Himself. And as imperfect as we are, if we'll allow Him, there's this incredible opportunity day by day to let Him shine through us. And so when you see that boldness, I don't mean boldness in terms of aggressive evangelism, I just mean a confidence in who we are as followers of Jesus, an unashamedness of being identified with Christ at a time when we might be tempted to be afraid. One of the biggest things I've seen God do in our Portland story has been raising up a level of confidence, the right humble confidence, if those things can work together, I think they can, um, in the person of Jesus Christ and being proud to be, to, to be named that. Um, and then fourthly, another obvious one is that uni unity is a force multiplier. It's something that has a greater impact than just the obvious one plus one equals two uh, sort of approach. There, there's a power that comes when, a, when city leaders in a place like Portland, when people that viewed the church as an antagonistic enemy kind of force, would see the, the, the incredible power of a mobilized community of churches of every denomination, every size, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic group, being willing to put aside secondary differences for the sake of the city, to be obedient to that Jeremiah passage of seeking the shalom of the city and also bearing witness to Jesus Christ in, in a united way. And once you catch the joy of that, I, I can't imagine Portland, we're 10 years in, and every time a new pastor comes into town, church planters, we gather them quarterly, a new pastor takes over an existing church, we welcome them into a community, a, a, a viewpoint of we are a part of a gospel movement that's been going now as long as there have been believers in Portland, but consciously these last 10 years. And to see the joy of that kind of unity uh, has been a blessing. And then I'll just conclude with this, and this partly brings to mind that my dad, who at 83, has been joyfully, boldly proclaiming the good news for more than 60 years. Faithfulness is vastly underrated. And what I mean by that is the faithfulness of continuing to do the small things that might not be noticed, Roosevelt High School is on the front page of the paper over and over and over again. They're getting a $20 million makeover because the school has been so transformed. Occasionally, there's something like that that gets attention. 
The vast majority of the things happening in Portland are, are done by thousands and thousands of individual followers of Jesus doing things that no one will, will notice, uh, but God notices, and uh, that, that simple, humble faithfulness of the individual, but faithfulness also of a group of leaders to say, even if it couldn't be proved that, uh, that the impact, the serving we're doing is moving the needle on some of the big social metrics, are we going to continue to bear witness to Jesus, love each other, serve faithfully, no matter what? And that kind of faithfulness that I've seen in my dad, who at 83, now cancer may well be the thing that, that, that stops him from being able to uh, exercise his gift as an evangelist, but I can promise you that's going to be about the only thing that would ever stop him uh, from doing that. It's, it's a blessing to work with him. Um, so good news in the city is kind of the theme for everything that we do now as an organization. Good news of unity possible that needs to be expressed in a time of divisiveness in our country. Good news that the church loves and serves and cares for the community, even if we've not always been as known for that as we should. And good news in that we have a message of good news that is life transformative for us. And it's a, it's a, a message that we joyfully proclaim to the world. And for those of you uh, here or, or watching in... Um, uh, Western Michigan, I just did want to remind you that everything we've talked about here in Portland, Oregon is not just kind of an old story that we're telling about one city. There are hundreds of cities around the country and around the world that have adopted this idea of a conscious effort of a city gospel movement, united together, loving and serving the community in fellowship with civic officials, and then occasionally doing something that proclaims the good news of Jesus. So for those of you that are here, we would love to have you be a part of this effort that involves 300 local churches now in, the, uh, in southwest Michigan are a part of this effort. Uh, uh, there's been meetings with the Grand Rapids mayor. They're beginning to look. There's a team, a CityServe team called One West Michigan that's thinking long past the festival to say what would it look like for every school in southwest Michigan to have a formal church partner? Who's already doing what? Which churches are already engaged? Which schools do or don't have partnerships? What are the best practices that have emerged? What are the wonderful nonprofits that could use volunteers? So a service effort. And then September 8 and 9, at that park there by the Gerald R. Ford Museum, which I can never remember how to pronounce, but if you're from here, you, it starts with an O, right? Anabawin. There we go. Okay, I'm beginning to get it. Uh, there it is there. To, to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping together. Uh, certainly there'll be great bands like Toby Mack and others. Toby is my brother's brother-in-law, so he kind of has to come, but uh, some others as well. And, and just being together as a body of Christ, celebrating the good that we do in the name of Jesus and joyfully proclaiming this life-changing message. So the first step, though, you're going to get a little flyer about this. Please join us as, uh, as the body of Christ comes together at Res Life um, the evening of March 1st to worship together, led by Phil Wickham, but to just really hear what could this be like if we begin to think in this collective way uh, in this part of uh, this beautiful part of the country. So come and be a part of it. Pray for the city. Pray for unity within the body of Christ and join in this effort. Thank you. I'm Karen Soppy from the English department and I'll be collecting questions you send or write. They can be if, if you have them on paper, wave them high and someone will collect them. Um, I'm going to start with a tough one, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Can you talk about some failures or mistakes that you've learned from? Yes, that, that's a great question. And uh, I would say one of the ones that jumps to mind relates to Roosevelt High School. So our, our greatest success was also a point of 
kind of abject failure when it came to not recognizing some very obvious things. For someone that, that was well-versed in community development practices, I'd be the first to say we were an evangelistic organization. We'd never thought deeply about the unintended consequences of our good deeds. Mm -hmm. So we went very naively, and uh, the South Lake Church that I mentioned that, that has had a major transformation in, in their understanding of, uh, of how to serve effectively. We just naively said, they said they, Roosevelt needs help. Here's a church of some means. They came, and they did some incredible things. But what we didn't do, which is so obvious, I'm sure half of you are saying, this guy's an idiot if he didn't think of this ahead of time. But we didn't do the right thing, which was to go first to the existing churches in that neighborhood, oh. as obvious as it is, and say, you are part, this is your neighborhood, this is your community. Your kids are the ones that go to Roosevelt High School. Let's, can we work together? What would make sense? Could we do this in partnership? So about six months into this effort, and the media is covering all this stuff, and we're just thinking, this is great. God's being honored, et cetera. You begin to get these rumblings from these smaller, wonderful churches that weren't trying to be negative or critical, but they just were basically saying, what about us? Like, this is our neighborhood. We live here all the time. We've been serving in some quiet ways. We don't have the resources uh, of a South Lake. So praise the Lord that the end of the story wasn't, and it was a big blow up. The end of the story now is, it was a humble repentance. And it wasn't repentance because South Lake had intentionally done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when we make mistakes like that, it's, not a, it's a sin of omission, not of commission. And um, uh, there's, there's a great relationship now. They've actually formed all one community. So, so in a place where there was no unity among the various churches in St. John's, they now have a, a new community of churches. Uh, and they now have taken on, they, what they said is like, you guys are doing a great job with Roosevelt. You continue doing that. We will adopt the elementary and middle schools that feed into Roosevelt and we'll do all of this together. So again, that's the, the impact of the body of Christ where people that would have a right to say, by golly, you came in uninvited in a way to our neighborhood and uh, ignored us, were offended. The spirit of Jesus in them said, we were a little bit offended, but reconciliation's possible. So that, that was a mistake that thankfully God turned to good. And it, it strikes me that I, I imagine one of the reasons for the success of CityServe is that you have typically gone to city officials not to say, here's what we want to do, yes. but to say, what do you need help with? That's exactly right. That, that posture that I think you heard described in the, with the mayor, with our superintendent, with principals, with the foster care system, once you learn it, you can't imagine doing anything else. But it's amazing how often our instinct as I'll speak for myself, although I'm half Latino, I don't look very Latino. So I'll, I'll say, you know, white, middle class sort of a person. We are confident in our abilities and that we have solutions. We've maybe even read great books on community development, but even in, with all of our knowledge, um, the unintended consequence of not primarily going as a humble servant and just asking questions. The other thing that impresses me about CityServe is that the, the goal of sustainability and um, I'm wondering if there are ways, so Portland's the longest running, yes. um, have there been elements of that project that did just sort of fall away yeah. uh, or new things come in? Yeah, that, that, that's a great, uh, uh, you know, that you, you caught that or maybe thought that would happen. Of the five areas that Sam first put forward, uh, a couple of them just kind of blazed up and faded pretty quickly because one of them was the environment. 
Um, and Portlanders are hugely environmentally conscious, and it's not that the churches don't care about that, but as a, as, a, as a means of mobilizing volunteers on a consistent basis, the churches did not want to become the unpaid uh, sanitation workers for the parks year after year after year. There's no human on, there's no life on life relational kind. So we, we basically said, look, you know, we've done some cleanups, but, but, you know, understandably, the churches want to impact lives and be in relationship, not simply say, uh, we're going to pick up trash every Saturday. Mm-hmm. So there were some that just kind of faded. I would say the human tra- on the human trafficking side, that became one uh, that, was, that was a bit of a challenge compared to know how to meaningfully engage compared to school partnerships, foster care, refugee care, um, making an impact on, on the victims of sex trafficking. Uh, other than creating awareness, it, the church has found it hard to, to say, how do we meaningfully engage and not just simply show movies and do things that create a lot of dust, you know, throw a lot of dust in the air, but mm-hmm. don't really come up with meaningful solutions. So the churches in Portland have kind of said, we think it's more effective to go more upstream at the elementary school level even and, and build into our schools and into the foster care system will be a more effective way to actually impact the, the, the victims of sex trafficking than maybe directly where mm-hmm. some of the uh, efforts, the Portland police were saying, we don't need a bunch of vigilante Christians staking out uh, the, hour, the hourly rent motels and some of the ideas that we were beginning to hear mm-hmm. that we said, not every idea is a good idea. And I'm imagining <laughs> for victims of trafficking, developing relational, uh, th- that has to be hard if, if, they're, if they don't, maybe at, don't at want to be identified. Point, it's a very, at that point, it's an incredibly important role, but it's not a role that thousands of people can be engaged with. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, whereas, whereas school partnerships, foster care, refugee care, you, you have a easy entry where people at various skill levels and ages and expertise can engage. Mm-hmm. Very few people would have the personal ability and walking in the spirit to the point or, or experience to be able to actually walk alongside of the, you know, someone that's been the victim of sex trafficking. So for a number of reasons, we realized that that might not be the place to do the big mobilization. Um, there was a question from an audience member earlier um, about whether you've had any initiatives working with, you mentioned working with the openly gay mayor. Um, something like 40% of homeless teenagers identify with the yes, LGBT LGBTQ community. Right. Um, have you had any successful outreaches with populations? Yeah, it's been, it's been a remarkable journey between um, uh, the Christian community, or, or I'll say the part of the Christian community that would, that would be most visibly seen to be standing at odds with the LGBTQ community. Because obviously there are, there are churches in Portland that are very much open and affirming, and there there wouldn't be so much the issue. Mm-hmm. But the majority of churches that we would be working with, not universally, but the majority would be evangelically leaning churches because, because this idea was word and deed. When it includes proclaiming the good news, and we have great relationships with the most progressive of churches, but parts of it would be more evangelically leaning. Um, so one of the things that Sam, just talking about partnership with the LGBTQ community, when Sam was mayor, the first time we found ourselves in a meeting that wasn't a meeting about something, but just at a social event, we were at a barbecue, and Sam comes up to me, this is maybe a year into it, and says, how much pressure are you getting from your constituency about this friendship? And I was kind of surprised, and my answer was like, None, really. I mean, the Christian community, thankfully, because, I mean, obviously things might have been misunderstood. More conservative Christians might have, in theory, said, you're compromising, you're, you're, you're holding hands, you know, literally and figuratively with, you know, part of the community that we can't agree with in every way, so you're compromising. 
people understood that our heart was to simply love and serve unconditionally. Uh, I don't consider the LGBTQ community my enemy in any way, but I would say to people on the ultra-conservative side, even if you consider them your enemy, what does Jesus say about it? So it's like, it's a pretty clear thing. There's no, so we had this barbecue. We, we, uh, he said, from my community, I'm getting nothing but uh, antagonism from certain parts of my community over my friendship with you guys because they're saying you're sleeping with the enemy. They're using you for political cover. You can't trust them. And, and Sam, Sam said, you know what, let's, th- this was early in the process before some of the stuff was as known. Um, he said, let's have a, some meetings in my office. I'll bring Portland's leading LGBTQ activists and leaders. You bring the pastors of the largest evangelical churches, and let's just see what happens. And I wish there was time to, uh, to, to describe, but it was a beautiful, beautiful time of mutual listening, telling our stories, repentance on the part of evangelical pastors, not for don't get me wrong, not for saying, hey, in all humility, this is how we read scripture, we can't stand with you on some things, but to say the way that you have been treated by our community is absolutely wrong, we repent of that. I mean, the tears on both sides, it led to me being at the Q Center, which is Portland's LGBTQ Community Center, at their invitation uh, to just do a Q&A. Among the questions were, you know, amazing, I'm a spiritual person, the, the barber, the director. I'm a spiritual person, but not really religious, but my favorite song has always been Amazing Grace. Give me an example of when you experience grace in your life. What, what you know, you talk about the gospel, you know, what, what does that word mean? Like, what, what is the gospel? And you're sitting here thinking, I'm sitting here at the Q Center at their invitation because they'd seen unconditional love and support in terms of common good serving the community, including uh, as you said, homeless teens that, that uh, a disproportionate amount come from the, that community. You've, um, well, a question earlier, I can't find it, so I'll paraphrase. We've had so many come in, and that's great. Um, Portland is a pretty unchurched city. Um, Grand Rapids, where yes. you'll be coming soon, Other quite end, the opposite. Yeah. Um, what in a good way, that's not a criticism, <laughs> you know, hey. What different kinds of challenges or opportunities do you find in Grand Rapids? And related to that question, there was a question about this being a community in which support, for instance, for Christian schools has sometimes resulted in uh, damage to the public school system. Right, right, the unintended consequence right. of, yeah, well, hey, we, right, exactly. Well, I would, say, I would say the difference is, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things. I mean, I mean, if Portland experienced revival and more and more and more people came to genuine faith in Christ and, and structures began to change in various ways, there would be some things that you would say would become more Grand Rapids-like. So you have a lot to be thankful for. But I would say, I would say that sometimes the, the visible desire for unity can be harder in a place that's more Bible belty, as I would say, because larger churches, for example, you know, churches may not feel the need. In Portland, there's a, there's a built-in desire to say, we've got to be together or we will accomplish nothing. We need each other. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's, it's, a re, it's of credit to, if you go to a church that's involved, the 300 churches that are involved, thank your pastors or leaders because some of these larger churches don't need something like this. They're already serving the community. They're doing a great job. But when, when a church that doesn't, quote, need it says, I'm still le- impelled by the Spirit of Jesus to, to cooperate. So I would say um, the opportunities, the challenges are the very good things that are happening mean that finding needs, I mean, this is such a place, this, it's so blessed with so many hundreds of amazing nonprofits, finding the, 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 the weak spots or the niches that might not already be filled well mm-hmm. will take a little bit more work. In Portland, 
it was, it was some of those things were easier. I said it would take a little more diligence to find the right places to engage thousands of Jesus followers. Uh, but I see it, I see it as, a, as kind of a good problem, not, not, not like a, a, a major negative for sure. Good. One of our students asks, what does the kingdom of God look like for you? I would say, now I, I say this only slightly jokingly, I mean, to me, parts of the kingdom of God look very much like Portland, Oregon. In the, and what I mean by that is when you see um, the kingdom expressing itself, you know, Jesus described the kingdom as this small thing. You know, he almost, he never described it as, a, as an institutional, hierarchical, politically powerful thing. He described it as small and you almost don't know it's there and it's the yeast in the dough. It's the little tiny seed that grows. And, and I would say um, um, that's what we feel in Portland. You know, we know we're numerically small, but as we love and serve in little ways, as we love each other deeply, uh, I think about those pastors coming around my, mat, my dad and mom literally and figuratively. Um, you see love within those that are following Jesus. You see the spirit of Jesus in us leading us to do radical kinds of things and build relationships that are very much outside what's comfortable for us and, and, and being unashamed of the good news but loving and serving and, and letting God's, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's his kingdom come. Where's, the, well is the, where's God's will being done? God's will is being done when public schools are, are, are more equitable and kids are served well, when kids aren't needed to be in the foster care system, but if they are, they're being loved and served well. So to me, I know that seems like a, uh, a bit selfish, but, but I hope that every one of you would look in your own community and say, the kingdom of God is in our community because the kingdom of God is within each of us. Um, and yes, there's a, there's a not yet part of the kingdom. There's the future full and in, 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 you know, in fleshing of the kingdom uh, uh, in the future. But right now, today, it's encouraging to see places where the kingdom is breaking out. And I, and I would say good old Portland, Oregon is one of them. Kevin will be out front to greet you after the talk. Thank you for coming. Have a great afternoon. Thank you Thank so you. much. That was great. Thank Good you. to have you.